And then verse 18. Okay. Okay. So, after we've read through it and we're writing down observations as we go, what we want to do next is find the weight of the text. And I I uh, suggested last week that the weight of the text is going to be found in a narrative based on the climax and the resolution, where the climax and the resolution in the story is, and in a in an epistle, um, even poetic literature. Um, then the weight of the text is usually with the commands or the repeated phrases. So let's start by just answering the question. I didn't put this on here, but what kind of literature do we have here for First Thessalonians? Okay, epistolary is, you know, the, the big word, but, but it's an epistle. It's a letter. It's, you, it uses logical statements. Paul's uh, using reasoning much like when I preach. It's, it's trying to use a logical progression of thought um, Rather than a story to try to 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 uh, identify his point. So, so in that type of literature, what we ought to find is this is important. Look for the commands in the text. Now, not all epistle uh, epistolary literature has commands. So, for example, in Ephesians chapters one through three, there are only like two or three commands in the entire three chapters. But then in chapters four through six, there's just dozens, because what Paul's doing is he's starting out with theology and he's moving to practical living, practical application. So sometimes you're going to come to text and you're just not going to find the uh, appeals or commands, and that's okay. Um, so just write that down in the, in the section. But here, list any appeals or commands. Now, command is pretty simple, right? It's um, it's a, a inter, not interrogative. It's a de, not declarative. What's the other one? Imperative, thank you. It's an imperative sentence, right, where there's an understood you that you are supposed to do something and then there's a, a verb that, that drives what we are supposed to do. So that's easy command. An appeal is something like the author wants you to understand something. What is it that the author wants us to understand? So let's look through this text again and you help me um, answer that next line there. Find the way of the text. What appeals or commands do we have in First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18? Okay, so the first, what verse is that? Okay, so he doesn't want us to be uninformed about what? Okay, so about those who are asleep. All right, any other appeals or commands? Okay, verse 18 is the command, the only command in the text. Encourage one another with these words. Any appeals left that we missed? Let me take a look here because I have two. But, but actually, it's, it's the same one that Paul mentioned. Okay, so we do not want you to be uninformed. And really, it's a two-part appeal about those who fall asleep or those who are asleep. And we don't want you to be uninformed so that you'll grieve like those who have no hope. So it's kind of a two-part appeal, so not to, not to grieve. So whatever Paul's saying in this passage, we need to focus on this because this is where the, the, the main part of the text uh, hinges on the command and then these two appeals of what he wants to know. All right, so let's look at repeated words or phrases. So what I'm looking for here is any word or concept or phrase that's repeated 
And if you find it, just tell me the the word and also the verse that it's in. Okay, where is the sleep? Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Anything else close to sleep that what is sleep talking about, by the way? Death. So is there anything that says dead? Sixteen. So we could we could say dead in verse sixteen. So again, if you see something that's very often repeated, this will help you find out what the topic of the passage is. All right. Anything else? How about uh, another word besides the sleep? Kind of a smaller passage, so you're not going to have too many. Okay, where is that? Seventeen and fifteen. Okay. How about here's here's something that's not exactly the same word, but we don't want to sorrow as those who have no hope. And then at the end, he says, um, "Let's see, I have verse." Verse 18, therefore comfort one another. So one's, one's a noun and one's a verb. So they're not exactly the same, but hope and comfort versus uh, 13 and 18. Okay, then you have uh, in Jesus, verse, six, verse 14, in Christ, verse 16. We can do that. In Jesus and in Christ. And then um, with him, with the Lord, verse 14 and verse 17. So as you look at these things that are repeated, this will help us as we're trying to find out what is the topic of 1 Thessalonians 4 and then what is the, the theme or the meaning, which we're going to come to here in just a second. All right, so let's go there. What is the topic? If okay, the resurrection of resurrection of the believers, okay, possibly rapture. Okay, anyone else want to improve upon that or add to it? The order. Okay, good. The order of of um, what hap- what takes place. During the rapture, okay, so we can put that. Okay, so that's pretty simple. You're just asking the question, what is the author talking about? Well, he's talking about the rapture. He doesn't say the word, but he's talking about the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the return of Christ, that sort of idea. Now, we find the complement, which is going to lead us to the theme, so I probably should be precise here. So complement, we have the subject or the topic. Subject is a little bit confusing because of, you know, we have subject of the sentence. That's why I often call it topic. But you're looking for the subject and the complement. The complement is is what exactly are we saying about this topic? If the topic is the rapture, what is Paul saying about the rapture? And this will actually lead you to uh, likely what the theme is. So what is Paul saying about the rapture? What is he saying about the return of Christ? Try to put it in a sentence. Well, if Jesus 
Okay. Okay, so Jesus died and is coming. Jesus rose again and is coming back. Any, anyone else want to take a stab at it? Okay, so let's let's try to try to bring some of this together, right? Encourage one another about what? Well, I don't want you to be uninformed that your believing loved ones that have fallen asleep would be cause for grief. Why? Because Christ is returning. So encourage. Believers ought to encourage other believers who have lost believing loved ones because Christ is returning. So we could um, try to improve upon it. Here's how I... Um, let's see if I can find how I put it. Um, believers who have lost loved ones should be comforted by the promise of Christ's return. And see, the idea of comforted is in there because that, that comes from verse 18. Comfort one another. Paul's saying you, you ought to do something based on what has happened. Don't think that because they missed Christ's rapture, you know, that they're going to miss out. They're actually going to be the ones who get there first. They're going to precede those who, uh, those who are alive and remain, right? And so they're in a good spot. Don't feel bad for them. In fact, be comforted by this. All right, so now um, this, we haven't quite come to the theme yet. We're really close. But before we do that, let's play Jeopardy with the text. Jeopardy with the text. What's the question that Paul is trying to answer in 1 Thessalonians 4? What kind of question is he trying to answer? And this goes along with what we've already talked about. But All right. What happens to whom? Okay, what happens to believers when Christ returns? And why do you say that? How does he answer it? Okay. Yeah. So what happens to the believer when Christ returns? And maybe we could say, what are the circumstances? How does that play out? You know, that goes along with the order that we saw before. And the answer to this question, the response to this compliment is usually going to drive towards what the main point is that Paul is getting at. Okay? So what, what, what happens to believers when Christ returns? Or what... Why should believers be comforted even though they're deceased? They're, even though their believing loved ones have died? Because when the Lord returns, they'll be caught up. And everybody will be together to be with the Lord forever. Right. So they and we are not going to miss the return of the Lord. Even believing loved ones who have died are not going to miss it. So we could come up with the theme. Here's the theme that I had when I preached this. I don't know how many years ago. Um, and uh, this is not, obviously this is not inspired, but, but I, I tried to stay to what the text is about. 
Christians should encourage one another regarding dead believers. And obviously we could fill in fill in a lot of blanks there. All right. So, see how that process works? You're you're using all of this information that you're gathering to try to drive yourself to some kind of a theme. Like what is Paul saying? Because here here's the problem that can happen when we come to a text. We can take um we can use a text as a springboard where it just becomes like, well, here's an interesting idea. Let's start talking about that. Let's let's start talking about um for example, um let me take a look at this text. Let's start talking about how some people fall asleep in church. Okay, that's not really the idea. There is talk there is talk of falling asleep here, but it's not talking about that. So what we want to know is um there's only one intended meaning of the text. The text can never mean what it never meant. So we can't just take the text and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We need to find out what the author meant. And so we use this, I would say, the normal laws of human language, how we speak, how we communicate, and these are the things that we need to drive at. What are the appeals and commands? What are the repeated ideas? What's the subject and the complement? And then uh, what's the passage trying to answer? All right. Is that clear? Any questions on that? Yeah, now, there's still a lot of questions we have. You know, like, um, how is how do we know that this is talking about the rapture? Or what does it mean that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout? You know, um, why is it that the dead, the dead in Christ rise first? And so we have all sorts of questions, but any questions that we have from here on out are going to be left for the next stage of the process, which is the dissection. We're going to try to answer the questions from the text. We're going to try to go to study Bibles and other passages of Scripture and commentaries to help us to answer these things. Okay, but but here's a great starting point. If we know what the text is trying to say, then we know what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us. Okay, this is how the, the Spirit teaches us, is we understand the Word in its actual form, in its, you know, and and, um, and then... And we do it based on the laws of, of normal language. All right. Let's try the next one, which is what? Psalm 1? So let's turn there and see if we can... Um, let's just read through it five times. We're not going to have time to go through it ten times, but we'll read through it five times. And uh, so we have a good idea of what's going on in the passage. And then we'll answer these questions. All right, so would someone read it one time? And then someone else can just, we'll just keep going. You can follow right up after the next person until we've read it five times.
Very good. Now, there's two advantages to reading through it multiple times uh, because you might be thinking, well, this seems kind of repetitive. I mean, we already know what's there. But one is the more we look, the more we see things that we hadn't seen before, which is why we continue to read through the Bible over and over again. But even when we take one section of Scripture and read through it multiple times in one sitting, then we see things that we hadn't seen before. Again, back to the fish illustration from last week with Nathaniel Shaler. He just had the specimen there. That's all he had the fish and he was told to just look at it so he just looked at it for hours and he could have read a lot of books on what the you know the the fish was and and all this 
But instead, he looked at it, and he found a lot more than, he learned a lot more than he, if you just read a lot of books. And so that's what I'm trying to help us to just look at the naked text and understand it for what it is. And um, so there's one advantage, is we see things we hadn't seen. Secondly, as we're answering these other questions that we have, it, if we've read it more than once, we know where that is in the passage, right? We remember, oh yeah, there's a part towards the middle somewhere, I don't remember what verse, but there's something about a tree planted by the river of the water. So I know where that's at. We can kind of start to see in our mind almost how the text is laid out. So there's two huge advantages to reading multiple times. You might want to skip this step, just go right to answering the questions, but I would encourage you to uh, to read through it all ten times or more. Um, that, that'd be great. For us, we're just we've just read it five times, and it's a fairly familiar passage, so we can probably answer these questions pretty pretty easily. All right, first, what kind of literature do we have? Poetic. So we have poetry. So um, where is the weight of the text in poetry? Not there's not a climax and resolution. What was that? Okay, there's going to be commands. Again, repeated words or phrases. Um, a lot of times in Psalms, the the main focus of the text is given in the first two or three verses. And so, um, like especially when you have a longer psalm, it's usually helpful just to read the first couple of verses and see what, what the, the psalmist is trying to say. So here, we're looking for commands. What commands are there in Psalm 1 or Peel's? Okay, so technically, you know, if we want to be an English snob, which I will be right now, um, those aren't commands. Those are, that's saying what kind of person a blessed man is. A blessed man is one who does not do this, and he does not do this, and he does not do that. So he's technically not commanding the reader to do that. Um, but we could put those under appeals, couldn't we? We'd want, because we want to see what a blessed man is. So someone who doesn't stand in the path of sinners... Uh, does not walk. Whoops, on the part here. So we'll say appeals. So, so actually, there are no commands in the entire in the entire passage. So that's okay. Um, doesn't walk. Say wicked. Doesn't stand. With sinners and doesn't sit with scoffers. Okay, we could probably find some other appeals through here because he's trying to get us to see something. But let's move on to the next one here, and I think it'll start to become clearer what the psalmist is, is getting at. So let's uh, let's look for repeated words or phrases or ideas. And again, the word doesn't have to be the same throughout. Again. You know, even in in the five readings that we had, we had from at least two different versions. Okay, so it's okay because those words are going to mean the same thing. Um, so, what are the repeated words, phrases, or ideas? Give me one. What is it? Law. Verse two. How many times? Okay, so law. Okay, good. How, how often do we see wicked? What verses? 
Okay, one. Did one as well. How blessed this man is not walking the counsel of the wicked. Okay. All right, what else? Where is that, Bill? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so that's wicked in the New American Standard, ungodly in the King James. Okay, good. Sinners, where is that? One, five, and then maybe we could add scoffers to that. Scoffers is like a different level of sinner, but... Uh, similar idea. See anything else? Okay, good. The way of. How about Righteous, verses 5 and 6. And how about this kind of interesting contrast in verses 1 and 5. Does not stand. And then how is it stated in verse 5? Will not stand. Does not stand, will not stand. So he, do, the righteous one, the blessed one, is the one who doesn't stand with these kind of people. But in the end, during judgment, he will stand. He'll be able to stand up underneath God's judgment. All right, so, very good. I, I uh, There's one more, the Lord, in verses 2 and 6. So, depending on the length of your passage, just, this could get pretty long. And usually what I do, especially when I'm doing like a whole chapter uh, and narrative, um, I usually leave it to, you know, usually words that are used more often than four times. But really, here we only have one word that's used more. So in a shorter passage, I do everything that's repeated uh, because I want to see what kind of things is the author trying to, to get at. You know, It's like the conversation that you have with your kids. Clean your room. Make sure your room's clean. Make sure everything's picked up. Well, if you keep saying the same sort of thing, then, then there's something there that the parent's trying to get across to the kid, right? So same idea when, when, when we read any type of literature read the newspaper, uh, something keeps getting repeated over and over again, then we should, our ears should perk up a little bit and say, well, that must be something that the author is trying to get us to see. All right, what's the subject? What is the author talking about? Okay. Okay, the godly and un- ungodly. How does he start? Yeah, how blessed is the man? So, what does it take to be a blessed man? I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there, but it seems like he's talking about the blessed man. The blessed man doesn't do this, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do this, but instead he's like the tree, and 
the wicked, they have a problem in contrast to the blessed man. And in the end, this is what happens to the blessed man. So that seems to fit with all the verses. And that's really what you ought to be able to see. The subject of the topic should fit with everything in the entire passage. It's generic enough that it's able to do, to do that. What about the compliment? So what is the author saying about the blessed man? Anybody want to try to put that in a sentence? Okay, good. Back to what Jonathan was saying. Uh, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. He doesn't delight in standing, uh, walking, standing, and sitting with sinners. The wicked man doesn't do that. And in the end, the blessed man is blessed. It has receives some kind of great blessing from that. Okay, good. There's again, these are not um, inspired. These responses here, but um, so you may have different wording, or you may come up with a different nuance of of what it looks like, but it should be able to include all of what is there in the text. All right, let's play Jeopardy with the with the passage. What's the question that the passage is trying to answer? What is the blessed man characterized by? All right, good. And and I like how you used like words from the text because we want to stay as close to the text as we can. Later on, when we, you know, if we teach this or we want to apply it to ourselves, then we can start using other words like Christian or, or something like that or, or the believer. But for right now, let's try to stay as close to the text as we can because we want to make sure that we're saying the same thing as what the author is. So what does the blessed man look like? Or act like is the idea there, but... Or we could say, what does the godly person look like? And Yeah, so he, he looks like he delights in the Lord. He doesn't delight in hanging out with the wicked. He, he's, he looks like a tree that's planted. He's firm. See, this, pas- this passage is going to answer this in multiple ways. And out of this, we're actually going to be able to develop some kind of an outline for what the, the author is trying to say. Um, so it seems like the author is trying to encourage his readers. Um, he's trying to appeal to them so that they will be blessed, right? So that you'll see the value of being blessed and then you'll do these things. And the solution is to delight in the law of the Lord. That's why I think verse 2 seems to be the key verse. The blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. So... Um, there's one aspect that we haven't talked about a whole lot except for right here. It does not stand, will not stand. This is talking about the time of judgment. Really, verse 6 kind of um, brings the passage, kind of ties it all up. It's saying that there's more to being blessed than just in this life, right? In this life, he's going to be blessed because he's not walking with the wicked. In this life, he's going to be blessed because he's going to be, whatever he does, he prospers, right? Verse 3. Um But then in verses 5 and 6, it seems to talk about the next life, doesn't it? That the wicked are the ones who are not going to stand in the next life, but the righteous are going to stand. That is, they'll be able to stand up under judgment, not because of any righteousness, right? We're 
we understand from the rest of the scriptures, not because we're earning anything from God, but but it seems to me that the theme of the text is that the godly person, okay, the godly person prospers in this life and the next. Because what? Okay, good. It answers the question. Right? Or, or it gives us the compliment. Because he he delights in the Lord. Now, you might say, well, why do all that work? I mean, it seems like, can't we just come up with something that's biblical? You know, something that's good? and just use that. Um, I don't think we can get here without doing all this. I mean, we can if we just go right to the commentaries, probably find a lot of the same things. Um, maybe a study Bible might help you get there quick. But, but it seems to me that we learn a lot more when we actually go through this process ourselves. Okay, any questions on that? All right, we're short on time, but I do want to do a narrative because... So let's turn to 1 Samuel 14. We don't have time to read through it um, multiple times, unfortunately. I was hoping we could read through it at least a couple times. But let's see if we can go through through this part quickly. All right, take a glance at the text. Again, I don't recommend this, just taking a glance at it normally, but let's assume that's familiar to you. So I just preached on it a year ago. First <laughs> Samuel 14, verses 1 to 15. What's the story about? What What are we talking about? Well, first of all, what kind of literature do we have? I already mentioned that, but it's a, a narrative. And the narrative or the history, uh, the weight of the text is on what? Not the commands, but what is it? Conflict and resolution. So you're looking for a conflict. There's an arc of the story. The story's introduced. Some kind of conflict is generated that makes us think what's going to happen. It leads to a question. How is this going to get resolved? It leads to a climax where we don't know what's going to happen. Finally, something happens and it's resolved. And based on where that climax is, that usually is the weight of the, the text, what the author's trying to convey. Okay. So... Uh, Let's see, do you have on your, what do you have on your hand out there? Do you have commands? Okay. Here, instead of commands, I, I probably shouldn't have put that. Instead, we're looking for the climax and the resolution. So let's see, from the text, what, what would you say, um, what would you say is the, the conflict that's generated? What conflict is generated here in the story that we're trying to resolve? Okay. Jonathan versus the Philistines. Pay-per-view. Who's going to win? That leads to a question. Who's going to win? Right? Or we could say maybe, is Jonathan going to go up? You know, is he actually going to go up this steep, slippery, 
dangerous, rocky crag that the Philistines would never defend because, like, no one can ever make it up there anyway. We'll leave that alone. There's the conflict. It's, it's generated when Jonathan says, should we go up to his armor bearer? And so now we have this question in our minds, what's going to happen? You know, how is this going to be resolved? Is Jonathan going to defeat? Is he going to go up? Is he going to defeat the Philistines? Where's the climax of the text? Where's the, the point where the conflict is the most intense? Tell me a verse. All right, so um, so that would be verse 12. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us. You know, Jonathan already said, Well, if they say come, we're coming. And so then in verse 13, Evan says, Jonathan climbed up with his hand and feet uh, and with his armor bearer, and they fell before Jonathan. So really it comes to a resolution pretty quickly, but it seems like, yeah, it's there. Verses 12 and 13 is the climax. Verse 13a, Jonathan goes up. And that little instant in the middle of verse 13 where we don't know what's going to happen, if we're reading this for the first time, that's where the climax is. Like he finally gets there. Is he going to die or is he going to, is he going to win? So then the resolution is what? How is the conflict resolved? Okay. They fight and win, and we see that in verse 13b and verse 15. The the whole camp trembles at them. So really, verses 13b to 15 gives us the resolution of the climax. All right. Um, The repeated words are still important in this text, so I'm just going to... I'm just going to... Breeze through these here real quick for you because we don't have time to to search for them. But Jonathan is mentioned ten times. Uh, Armor bearer is mentioned two, four, six, six times. Yeah, the garrison's mentioned one, two, three, four, five, six. What is a garrison, by the way? Yeah, they're standing in a specific place trying to guard it. Um, how about the idea of come or come up? It's in there um, three, six times. Um, and then I think the most, there's a crossover as well. Crossover's there four times. But then there's this interesting one about the Lord because you might just think, oh, this story's all about Jonathan and the Philistines, but really it's about the Lord because if you look in verse 6, the Lord will work for us. Verse 6, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or a few. Verse 10, the Lord has given them into our hands. Verse 12, the Lord has given them into our hands. or into the hands of Israel. So that actually helps us to see a little bit more, a little bit refined. It's not just about Jonathan and the Philistines. It's about Jonathan's Lord. Okay, so I know we've kind of breezed through that, but let's see if we can get the... Uh, uh, subject and the complement. What is the subject? What's the passage talking about? Just in a couple words. Uh, 
Okay, good. So if maybe a, a way to describe this is say, um, you know, let's say you're telling somebody who's never read this passage before what First Samuel 14 is about. Say, well, it's about Jonathan the Philistines or Israel and the Philistines. What is the author saying about Jonathan or Israel and the Philistines? This one's a little bit harder. Okay, good. Jonathan, the word courage is not used, right? But it's really about Jonathan's courage and Jonathan's faith. Somehow, the text is telling us that Jonathan's courage is connected to his faith. Because it's about the Lord will save by many or by few. Right? It's the Lord who will deliver us today. It's the Lord who has won this battle for us. The Lord has given him into our hands. And so it has something to do with Jonathan being courageous. And, and that courageous seems to spring from his faith that God is going to accomplish something through him. It said that in verse six. Yeah, come and let us cross over. To the garrison of the, these uncircumcised, perhaps the Lord will work for us. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So yeah, that's that's a good key verse probably, where he's connecting his courage. We're going to cross over to his faith because of the Lord. He's confident in what the Lord will do. Good. So how would you? What would the answer or what would the question be of this passage? What's the passage trying to answer? Um, and I didn't get into this in a lot of detail, but there are six questions, six ways to start a question, right? Six friends that taught me all that I knew, who, what, when, why, how, who, right? So often what I do when I don't know what the question is, I just go through that list. Is the author trying to answer the question of what? Here, let's get rid of a couple easy ones, all right? Is he trying to answer the question of when or where? No. Maybe why? How seems to be like, how does God use people, maybe? And then we could have that. What does a person need to do in order to express faith? Um, these don't seem to be when or where. Don't. Why does a person, maybe? But I think this is really the question. Who? Who, who can God use to defeat his enemies? Okay, yeah. And the answer to this would be How about, yeah, faith-filled or, you know, people who trust in God? We could say something like faith-filled risk-takers. God uses faith-filled risk-takers or something like that. Um, 
those who are concerned more about the approval of God than the risks that they're engaging in, um, God God is able to use. I know it's kind of clunky, but um, but it seems to be that something to do with with Jonathan's faith that leads to his courage, and this is the kind of person that God uses. Um, so once we get there, the next step is to is to um, start to ask questions of the text, which is what we're going to look at next week. And again, this this leads to just a huge load of questions uh, for us, and that's a good thing. We want to try to answer them from the text, and we're going to be able to use some resources to help us with that. But if we can get to this point to start with, we've come a long way than just, oh, that's an interesting story. Let's be, let's uh, let's go after the Philistines like Jonathan. No, we can't really make an application until we first understood what the author is trying to teach. And we can also look at this in the context, right? What is the author trying to say in contrast to his father, who is not a risk taker? He's actually um, very passive, right? He didn't want to go out into battle at all. So... Um, any questions or comments on that? I'm just thinking about that. Uh, it like balls rather than under the yeah. pomegranate tree while Johnson goes out and wants to fight to see if he can get victory. Yeah, I remember Saul, when he first be, was, was anointed as king before all of Israel, they all knew about What did he do? He went back home, started back to his farmland, didn't go to try to win any battles, didn't try to establish his kingdom, like, I don't really feel like this is for me. But then as Jonathan started to initiate some battles, win some wars, and other battles were initiated by God through some um, through some catastrophic events, then all of a sudden Saul's like, yes, I can do this, and now this is my throne, and then he, he possesses it as if he, you know, he gave it to himself or he earned it for himself. All right, so um, let me just encourage you that you have what it takes to to find out what the text is saying. And I would say even without any external resources to know what this text means. Um, and, and, and once you get there, you've come a long way because the next step is trying to just open up all of what the text is saying, how that fits into the overall theme, all the parts of the text fit into the overall theme, and then I'll move from there into application. All right? Let's pray, and I will be dismissed. Father, thank you for uh, the clarity of your word, and uh, sometimes we look at the text and just overcomplicated. Overcomplicated. There are just so many words in the Bible, and we can get overwhelmed by it. And uh, yet, when we just take a, a small part of Scripture and try to understand it, uh, Lord, we feel like we have the tools to be able to do that. So thank you for that. We want to be uh, stewards of your word. We want to be um, we want to study to show ourselves approved workmen who do not need to be ashamed, who are rightly dividing the word of truth. Not people who are just uh, being spoon-fed um, from others, but that are, are feeding on the word ourselves. So help us to be good at that and to test the scriptures, um, to test what is being said about the scriptures by the scriptures uh, with the resources that you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.